Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 24 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official position or policy of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. I hope y'all have had a great summer. Uh, I very much enjoyed my break from the podcast, but I'm also glad to get back to it. I love podcasting. But if you've ever done it before, you know how much time and energy it takes. I spend about four to five hours per episode. That includes scheduling, preparing for, and recording guest interviews, preparing and recording intros like this one, editing, distribution. So over my break, I had a revelation and a dilemma. Unfortunately, I can't do anything. I am also a fiction writer. I am releasing my Lara Kingsley series this fall, um, Bionic Bug being the first book in that series. They will be available uh, as eBooks on Amazon shortly. So Bionic Bug comes out on October 1. Um, I'm also trying to start up my own consulting firm. And um, I have to focus my time on things that actually put a roof over my head, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, There's only 24 hours in a day. I could really use a time machine if any of you know about one. Um, And unfortunately, my podcast still costs me money to produce. That means I'm paying money each week to bring you new episodes. So that brings me to my pitch. If you want me to do more episodes, you can help me get there. If it starts making money, I can do more episodes. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron for only a few dollars a month at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. Until I can justify more podcasting, I've decided to produce only two episodes a month. I'm sorry about that. If you want me to do more, please consider becoming a patron. I have some exciting news to share. I was selected as one of several, 15 actually, N-Square Fellows. So what is an N-Square Fellow? Well, essentially, we are a cross-sector group of technologists, game designers, policy experts, diplomats, Hollywood filmmakers, and we're all interested in confronting the nuclear challenges of today and raising awareness. The N-Square Fellowship is sponsored by the N-Square Foundation, which is a conglomeration of some of the largest peace and security funders across the United States, and they come together to promote innovation in the nuclear weapons space. If you're interested in learning more, please go to www.nsquare.org. I'm really excited to share this today in particular because I am interviewing another N-Square fellow from a previous cohort, Lacey Healy. She is the CEO and editor-in-chief of Inkstick Media and the host of the Things That Go Boom podcast. We talk about starting a new business, podcasting, and the conflict between the United States and Iran and Iran's nuclear weapons program. And this is a pretty timely interview. If you've been reading the news, you see that in recent headlines, we're reading about Iran speeding up the uranium enrichment program and their intentions to exceed limits within the nuclear agreement. This development comes after several moves uh, by Iran to test uh, the agreement um, that freezes and reduces this nuclear program. Uh, The U.S. withdrew from it in May 2018. So I hope that you'll tune into what is an extremely fascinating conversation with Lacey. And I'll just give you a little teaser. We use jelly beans to explain uranium enrichment. Hey everyone, welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm here with Lacey Healy. She's the CEO and editor-in-chief of Inkstick Media and the podcast host of Things That Go Boom. She's had a 10-year career on WMD-related issues with stints at Global Green USA, Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and the Stimson Center. Lacey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
So I thought we would start off by talking about, because it's on my mind, uh, going into business for yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about Inkstick Media, why you started your own company, and what you're currently focused on. Sure, yeah. So I started Inkstick Media um, almost two years ago now. Uh, only it's, it's sort of still a baby. It's about a year and a half old. Um, and... I started it because there, well, for a few reasons, uh, there just wasn't anything out there that I felt like was for me. <laughs> and as I started going around talking to a lot of other folks, uh, I realized that I wasn't the only one who felt that way. I realized that a lot of folks felt like there, there wasn't sort of a media outlet out there that was speaking to them and not just speaking to them, but speaking to a broader, broader audience. And so we have sort of a twofold mission. One is to uh, elevate uh, more diverse perspectives, um, we, we, which includes uh, younger voices, which includes um, voices of, of women, women of color, um, you know, everyone across the spectrum, not just the same old folks that you're sort of used to hearing from uh, in a lot of outlets that focus on foreign policy. Um, and the other is to really broaden uh, the scope of, of who we're speaking to. And so we do a lot of storytelling. We you know, don't use overcomplicated language. We just are are trying to you know speak to a, a bigger audience. So um, I went, I went for it. I, I sort of was pitching this idea for a while. Eventually, uh, I found some folks who were um, just as excited about it as I was. Uh, one of the the one of those folks was um, PRI, Public Radio International, um, and so I both launched the web side of Inkstick, which is a foreign policy magazine, and launched our podcast things that go boom with PRI um, as sort of, you know, in this this last year and a half, I've launched both of those things. And uh, it's it's been a crazy ride. <laughs> Starting your own thing is totally a crazy ride, which uh, I understand that you're, you're, you're in the process of doing as well. Yeah, I, I actually am, and, and um, I'm just um, really impressed uh, by um, the fact that, you know, you, you did so, so early in your career. It took me a little bit longer to realize that um, my career, I could keep doing the same thing, but it wasn't really for me, so I kind of had the same kind of revelation. I'm like, you know, I really need to do something different, and yeah. um it is a wild ride. I mean, basically, it's a roller coaster park without standards and safety regulations. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, when you're at the top of that, that, that major hill on the roller coaster, you're like, oh, someone's tested this, right? For safety, no problem. I can really you know, stick up my hands and enjoy the free fall. Um, there's no such thing when you go into business for yourself. There's no, uh, it's, 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 it's kind of a, for real, a free fall. So it's, it's exciting though. It's definitely. Yeah, thrilling. no, it's, it's amazing. I, I am definitely one of those people that operates better, um, well, better and worse uh, it, uh, with my, you know, own control over what I'm doing. The, one of the pitfalls is that you end up working all the time. Um, vacations aren't really vacations anymore. Um, you know, nights and weekends aren't really nights and weekends anymore. Um, and, and maybe, you know, depending on what kind of person you are, you might do more of that. Than well, I, I need to be better at boundaries, probably. So <laughs> I, luckily for me, I spent um, three years in the Pentagon where days can turn into 12-hour days very quickly and yeah. um, your weeks merge into your weekends and it kind of all just becomes one big blob of working constantly with the Blackberry and the red light blinking. Um, yeah. I came to a um, point um, in my third year at the Pentagon where I realized this cannot go on. Um, and I stopped. I just stopped. Yeah. And the sad part is that I felt like some of my involvement in being in the loop um, was sacrificed. So this is why I think people kind of stay on when you're in a job that is moving so quickly. You don't want to lose out on the opportunity. And I, I did see opportunities go by. But I had to kind of kind of say, okay, so what what's the cost of all of those opportunities, right? And I think um, that's where maybe I have a leg up. I'm I'm 10, 10 plus years older. Um, yeah. I um, I'm, I have less energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
I go to bed a lot earlier than I used to. Um, and I just, things like my life is still, my life is important, but yeah, it does. It does bleed over last night. I was doing a couple emails at eight 30 and I asked myself, Natasha, what are you doing right now? Oh, you're so good. You're so good not to do that. <laughs> I, oh I really, I tell myself, I, I do tell myself all the time. And, and particularly I have little kids. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, uh, a lot of times that, that when I'm really good about shutting it off is when I'm with them, at least I try to be, because it's much easier for me to say, no, like this is not a time when you need to be checking in with work. This is a time when you need to be focused on your family. But then after they go to bed is definitely um, a time that I should be taking for like me, for mental health, for for like, you know, taking care of yourself is like a real thing, particularly when you have little kids. Uh, and I almost always get back on my computer and start working again. So, so that's something I will continue to work on because I know that that's not good. Yeah. It's, it's, I think a discipline that's learned and, and perhaps it's one that, you know, as you age, you kind of learn because you have to. Um, and yeah. that's kind of what I was implying is that <laughs> I'm, I'm slowed down just a tad and, and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I just don't have all the energy I used to have. Um, so you started up a podcast as well, Things That Go Boom, and I would highly recommend this podcast to my audience. Um, I think, you know, like my podcast, we try to break things down at a, at a basic level and stay away from jargon. So why did you decide to get into podcasting? Oh my gosh, I love podcasting so much. I so I I didn't know anything. I, I loved podcasts. I didn't know anything about podcasting. Um, when I when I met the folks at PRI, I had a pitch for what I wanted to make, but I didn't know how to make it. Um, what I really wanted to create was something that was like This American Life for National Security. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted it to be um, highly produced. I wanted to, uh, you know, I, it to be narrative based. Uh, and and I will say there was a fair amount of skepticism on all sides that I would be able to pull that off. <laughs> both, both based on sort of the subject matter um, and my total lack of expertise, um, all of those things. I think they were like, yeah, okay, we like the idea. Let's go for it. Um, and, you know, we'll see if you can do it. And bless them for doing that because uh, they, you know, they, they both, uh, said okay, they gave me a chance, but they also hooked me up with a really wonderful producer who really showed me the ropes of making radio, which is is something that I, I knew nothing about. Um, and it it really is, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a lot of work. Oh my god, it's, I had no clue how much work it is. It's like yeah, I tell people often, it's like you know, people have have a pretty good sense of like a documentary is hard to make. Mm-hmm. Um, you just take away the visuals and it's, it's very much the same process. You have to go out, do the reporting, gather the, the, the clips, gather the, all of the interviews. Um, we do a lot of background reporting as well. And once you pull everything together, then you have to write around it. You have to edit it. You have to, um, engineer it so it sounds good there there's just there's a huge process to get to a place where you know you get to an end product and it takes us a really long time it takes us about a month an episode to pull that together oh my god um yeah so so it's so it's really really crazy um and so i so so all that to say I have learned a lot going from knowing nothing to like really having this, this understanding of, of, of just what it takes. And, and so, you know, when we're deep in production, the podcast takes over my life, but it's like such a good, it's, it's such a good taking over my life because it's, it's one of the most satisfying things I, I think I've ever made. It, it really is. Um, yeah. So I'll just interject enjoy. here and tell the listeners if they want a podcast of truly high quality leave this one and go to things that go boom. They have producers there. <laughs> they actually spend a month on episodes. Um, 
I actually, when I first started my podcast and I, it took me eight hours to produce an episode and that includes, you know, the prep time, um, the interview, kind of the opening recording, the editing, you know, the packaging, and then putting it out there. I was really mad. I was like, eight hours. This is unacceptable. Um, I, <laughs> like I, you're supposed to just be able to plug and go, right? That's seriously. the idea of a podcast. Um, and, and so there I is got, another side. Yeah. I got it down to about four to five hours per episode for a 45 minute episode. I, I kind of am light on editing. So I kind of I listen to the episode. If there's any major glitches, I, I get rid of it. But otherwise I just kind of let things go as they go. Um, but so I, I launched this podcast um, back in March and um, I kind of sensed what was happening in my life. I knew that I was going to quit my job. I knew that I was going to start up my own company. I knew that I was going to sell my house in DC and move to another state. And, but I'm like, no problem. I, cause I had already done a podcast where I was reading my fiction called the bionic yeah. bug podcast. And that was a lot easier to do than interviewing people and getting prepped for the interviews. <laughs> cause I actually have to like, I'm like, Oh my goodness, I got to go read something about something. So that I, that I sound intelligent along with my guest and figure out intelligent questions to ask them. And, um, I was like, yeah, no problem. I can do one a week. And, uh, like a couple months in, I was like, whose idea was this? <laughs> Seriously, no, no. I'm, I'm, this like, is, wait, this is this is a lot of work. Like, yeah. yeah. So, um, I actually, and and my listeners know this. I'm going to take a month off in August and come back after Labor mm. Day, um, because I'm tired. Everybody takes a month off in August anyway. Oh, good. So I, nobody's nobody's going to be listening to podcasts. They're going to be on the beach, right? They'll all be on vacation. Yeah. It's true. All right. So you're in your second season of Things That Go Boom. And yep. it's my understanding that you're focusing on the Iran deal and all things Iran. Is that correct? Yes. So the whole season, um, our whole second season is all about the Iran deal. So um, narrative human stories about the, that, that help you to learn about the Iran deal, um, sort of interpret what's going on right now with Iran. And also it, you know, it's the backstory of how we got here. All right. Well, I thought we would dig in a little bit into that. And um, in, in, in the headlines uh, in the last couple of years, uh, the Iran deal is the worst deal ever. Uh, <laughs> and so before we dig into it, though, I'm wondering, could you, you know, help us with the backstory? How did Iran get started on its nuclear program? Who did they get help from? When did yeah. their weapons activities start? When did we figure it out? You know, yeah. kind of all of that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the Eisenhower, uh, the Iran, uh, Iran actually got its start on uh, its nuclear program from the Eisenhower administration. There, we had a program called Atoms for Peace, uh, which was a, a nuclear energy um, program. We uh, gave them the reactors, and they promised not to build a bomb. Basically, um, very nice, uh, seemingly very nice program. Uh, the best deal ever. Yeah, best deal ever under the Shah, uh, who was, you know, just our total best friend um, because we had, you know, kept him in, in power uh, as, as part of a coup. Um, and uh, all this happened, you know, before the revolution. Um, and when the revolution uh, took place in Iran uh, and the Shah was ousted and the current regime took power, uh, or essentially the current regime, uh, there's been some turnover, but it's basically the same folks. Um, we, that they, that the nuclear program started to look a little bit more suspicious. Uh, it had, you know, there had been some rumblings of suspicion before then, that maybe they weren't just using this technology for peaceful purposes. Um, but but it really started to look a little bit more suspicious and and ultimately you know much later on we realized that they did have a nuclear weapons program um under uh the 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 previous ayatollah uh and that actually ended in 2003 so it's it's been this very long history of you know we have a we have a nasty history with iran we have a, a very um a lot, of, a lot of mistrust. We staged a coup in 1953. The revolution happened. The hostage crisis in the 70s, um, and and then this sort of slow march of Iran's nuclear program, basically since. Um, and that's how we found ourselves at at a 
at a sort of point under the Obama administration where Obama said, okay, well, we're going to try something new. We're going to, you know, we're going to go and we're, we're going to negotiate with these folks and we're going to see what's going to happen. Um, at the same time, they were able to put really tough international sanctions on um, and, and pressure around the negotiating table. Um, all of those sanctions, you know, we really secured international support for those sanctions as a result of uh, the discovery of Iran's facility at, at Fordo, which was you know, inside in the side of a mountain. Um, it looked much more suspicious than anything that we'd ever discovered before, uh, and you know, was was very likely um, was very likely for military purposes and not, not for uh, energy purposes, and so. You know, all of this pressure combined with the willingness to, to negotiate ultimately led to a series of back channel talks uh, led by uh, Jake Sullivan and Bill Burns. And uh, those back channel talks ultimately led to sort of a historic phone call between Obama and President Rouhani of Iran. And that sort of led us down the path of negotiations, a very long and arduous path that brought us the Iran deal. Um, of course, now we know that uh, the, we've, you know, we're, we no longer have the Iran deal because President Trump pulled out. Uh, now Iran has, has similarly pulled out of the deal or begun you know, breaching the limits of the deal. Uh, and we find ourselves sort of back in this place that we were um, prior to negotiations, which was a very tense spot where we were, we were uh, on the verge of potential war. Um, I don't want to say that a war is imminent, but we are, we are in a sort of tit for tat that is dangerous and can lead to war. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a bad so, place to be. In other words, we have a bit of a history with Iran. Um, this has been going on for decades. Um, and we, we provided the foundation for their new nuclear weapons program. I just want to note for the listeners interest, because it's a fascinating story that mm -hmm. in the 1980s, Iran got some significant help from AQ Khan, uh, who was yes. the head of Pakistan's nuclear program and pretty much read, um, uh, ran, ran a um, basically illicit trading network um, out of Pakistan um, and helped out Iran, North Korea, um, and Libya uh, with their nuclear activities. And so I just wanted to note that. Um, but let's, let's yeah. talk about the Iran deal a bit because, you know, it, it gets called the worst deal ever. Um, you know, a lot of criticism about the Obama administration about not doing a good enough job. And um, I think it's important to understand um, that, uh, you know, countries are sovereign nations. There's no international authority. And, um, in, you know, if a country decides that it's in their interest to get nuclear weapons, um, it it, it makes sense, you know, from their perspective. But why was Iran so egregious, right? Um, they signed the MPT, right? Yeah. So yeah. So 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 Iran. You know, the reason why we wanted Iran signed the NPT. Iran uh, theoretically was not going to build a nuclear weapon, but they were they were pushing the limits for many years. There, they were pushing the limits. Their nuclear program was sort of. Stepping, they were stepping up their stockpile. They were stepping up their enrichment from from 3.5 to 20, um, and, and it just looked it just looked worse and worse. And you know, again, one of the the really defining moments of this was the discovery of of their nuclear facility in the side of a mountain at, at Com Fordo, uh, which is it was we didn't know about it. And this is actually kind of a great story. Technically, we did know about it. Intelligence knew about it for some time. Um, at some point, Iran caught word that we knew about it, and they rushed to declare the facility to the IAEA. And we caught we we knew that they were that they had found found out that all of this sort of telephone <laughs> that that they knew that we knew, and that they were rushing to tell the IAEA and. We assembled uh, Obama um, and uh, the the UK and and French um, leaders went on television and said, "We know that Iran has this secret nuclear facility, and here we are standing united 
we're mm -hmm. ready to, you know, sanction Iran and um, really, you know, get tough on them because we've discovered this nuclear facility. But it was all this sort of uh, fast moving game at the end there of Iran trying to, to, to rush to declare the facility. Um, and then and they said, oh, well, we just didn't get to it yet. But it was that like was in 2003, right? That was in 2009. 2009. Um, okay. That was in 2009, actually. Uh, in 2003, the reason why Iran actually stopped, or why it seems that they um, stopped their nuclear program, actually had a lot more to do with the Iraq War. Um, we were, we had, you know, just gone into Iraq uh, on the basis of WMDs, and uh, it really, you know, the U.S. was looking quite adventurous at that moment. Uh, this was at the time of the axis, Bush's axis of evil, mm -hmm. um, which in which Iran was included. And it really, you know, if, if you were um, Iran and you were looking at the Bush administration thinking um, about, you know, any kind of signaling, the Bush administration was signaling pretty strongly, Iran, you're next. And, and Iran was taking that seriously. Um, and so at the time, uh, they, you know, I, it, it also, the Iran-Iraq war um, had passed. That was sort of the reason why they initially started their nuclear weapons program, it seems. Um, the time had passed. It was expensive. It seems that they made the decision to at least uh, not fully pursue a nuclear weapons program to, uh -huh. to sort of hold off. And, and, okay. Um, yeah, let's, let's pause for a second and just explain a few things. So basically what you're saying is that by 2009, Iran had built up a, what we call a latent capability in our community, mm -hmm. which is essentially a breakout capability. So the ability totally. to potentially develop nuclear weapons within a short time frame, but they hadn't actually developed nuclear weapons. And then the second issue I want to point out is that if they are enriching uranium, to 20%, and when we say 20%, we mean 20% of the uranium isotope 235, because that is the fissile isotope, the isotope capable of fission, and therefore generating the nuclear um, explosion that comes from a bomb. 20% um, is really important because there's a really interesting curve, and the amount of work that you need to invest in order to get to 20%, it kind of goes up really steep, up to 20%. And then at 20%, it kind of flattens out. And you see 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%. 90% is the weapons-grade um, uh, uranium used by nuclear weapon states. That's kind of a flat curve. So most of the work is done by 20%. So they were, they were pushing up against a very important line in 2009. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and so um, <laughs> on the podcast, we have a really fun uh, explainer, by the way, on that that 20 to 90 percent. Um, tell us. Uh, Ernie Moniz uses jelly beans to explain. Uh, okay. it, that, that essentially, um, if you have a bucket full of jelly beans and there are two different colors of jelly beans and, you know, you're sorting out, like, say they're like licorice and lemon, like you've got like black and, and yellow jelly beans, you're sorting out all the like gross black jelly beans, right? Because you don't want those. Um, and as you sort out those gro gross black jelly beans, it gets easier to see how many yellow jelly beans you have. And there are fewer black jelly beans to sort out. So basically, that's the process of enrichment. I love and that. Once, once you get over 20%, it gets a whole lot easier to find those black jelly beans in the yellow, which is the, you really want the yellow. That, ex that explains it exactly, because at the end of the day, what you're trying to sort, and unfortunately it's not as easy as black and yellow, you're trying to sort um, uranium-235 from uranium-238, which are two different isotopes that differ by three neutrons, right. and it's, they're the same element. So it's kind of like sorting the same kind of apple from the same kind of apple that is just atomically different, and you just can't right. see it. No. <laughs> Not nearly as easy as jelly beans. <laughs> but I like I like that analogies. Okay, so let's um so you said back channel talks. Let's let's fast forward to yeah. um the Obama administration, back channel talks. They managed to negotiate the Iran deal, which is formally known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA. Um, what did that get us? So what were the obligations on both sides of that deal? Yeah, so uh, what it what it really got us um, was a, a stop. 
a stop to this slow progress of Iran's nuclear program, right? They, but you talked about breakout capacity. Iran was, I believe at that point, it was, it was a matter of months they were down to, three months, I think, um, the, of breakout capacity. So essentially, if they decided to go for a nuclear weapon, they could have one in very, very short work uh, when we were in this process of negotiations. And that was the back channel negotiations opened up actually in 2012. So there was a really tense period between 2009 and 2012 um, that, that we were sort of on the verge of war. We were ramping up sanctions pressure. Um, Iran was doing a lot of things sort of similar to what they're doing now, things that um, just kind of made the situation worse, but they were little tit-for-tat responses, and they were also increasing their, their nuclear capacity and, and moving closer and closer to the point where, where their breakout capacity was, was very, um, was very small. And this, that's also the famous moment with uh, Netanyahu where he stand up, stood up before the UN General Assembly with the cartoon bomb, the very wily e. Coyote looking cartoon bomb, and that had a red line drawn across it. And he said, you know, this is, this is literally our red line. When Iran gets to this point, we're going to attack. Um, and so we were in this tense moment where it was like, we might not attack, but Israel might attack, and it might pull us into uh, a war in, in the Middle East that we don't want. And so these back channel negotiations were opened. They were facilitated by the Sultan of Oman, um, who had just negotiated, the long story is, had just negotiated the release of the, the hikers who had been taken prisoner in Iran. Um, so he was sort of filling his oats, and he was ready to uh, get another thing going. And we, uh, we, we negotiated this deal. Uh, the deal got us, uh, um, a, a, most importantly, uh, much more access to Iran's nuclear facilities. So the IAEA was able to uh, very closely monitor everything that they were doing. Uh, it also um, required Iran to uh, ship out and destroy and ship out uh, most of what they had at that moment. So um, dismantle their centrifuges, uh, ship out their uranium, particularly their high enriched uranium and most of their low enriched uranium. Uh, and in exchange, we relieved some of that sanctions pressure that we had put on. And that was the point. We put the sanctions pressure on in order to bring them to nego the negotiating table and get them to give up some of these things. And so in exchange, we relieved some of that sanctions, pre sanctions pressure. We also um, gave Iran back some of its money that had been held uh, uh, as, as part of sort of a previous- The famous um, payment. Yes, the famous payments, exactly. The, the pallets of cash. Um, yeah, that was Iran's money. Uh, you know, President Trump talks about this money all the time. He, he often gets the number wrong. He always gets the, the, the actual, you know, leaves out the part that it was Iran's money that we were giving them back. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it, it, this was this was just like the sanctions relief. This was uh, something that we had done to punish Iran in the past, uh, and we were, as an incentive for them to cooperate with us, we were, you know, giving it back to them. It's like I, I took your toy and I held it for a while, and you know, okay, now you're now you're being good, and so I'm going to give it back to you. This is like how I deal with my children. Uh, so, so like it really was not. Uh, it wasn't wasn't what. Trump wants to paint it as, um, though, you know, we did deliver uh, the money sort of in bags of cash, which understandably, like the optics of, were not not that great. But that was because <laughs> that was because of sanctions, um, and because the situation right now is such that you just can't transfer money to Iran um, because they they still are, you know, under they still are under a lot of sanctions, even with the Iran deal, right. Um, many of the sanctions that Iran is under still remain. Okay, so let's review. Basically what we got is we got Iran to dismantle a lot of centrifuges to basically agree to um, not enrich uranium up to 20% anymore. We removed a lot of uranium. We, um, they, they shut down their heavy, um, their heavy water facility or they at least it's not gonna be used. Um, and uh, they have agreed to inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency, which, by the way, is the international organization that um, makes sure that countries who have signed the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty are 
basically living up to their agreement not to misuse peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And um, we reduced their breakout time to develop a nuclear weapon. And in exchange, we removed sanctions and gave them back their money. Right. Okay. All right. So this deal was heavily criticized. Um, in yeah. fact, um, President Obama couldn't even get it through Congress, and that's why it's an executive-level deal. Usually treaties between countries um, go through Congress, and then they get ratified by Senate, which makes it yeah. harder to withdraw from the treaty because you need another uh, congressional action. Um, why? Why was it criticized so ruthlessly, almost? Yes. Yeah, so, well, a lot of that, the interpretation of that depends on where you sit. Right. So if we think about if we go back to the New START Treaty, for example, the New START Treaty um, was an, a nuclear treaty uh, between the U.S. and Russia, uh, an agreement that uh, required that both countries reduce their stockpiles. Um, and and uh, this is something that, you know, we've been doing you know, back to Reagan. Like we we've been doing this for a long time. This is uh, essentially business as usual. It also allows us to. Um, you know, continue to have a lot more information on that what the Russians are doing. It's a it's a semi, it's a mutually beneficial deal. Basically, this treaty was almost impossible to get through the Senate. Uh, it was it it took I I think it was what it was one of the first things that the Obama administration did on nuclear when they sort of came in and Obama gave the big Prague speech where he said he was gonna you know do all of these things to eventually bring us to you know someday a world without nuclear weapons um it's it it was super hard to get through the senate and this some of this had to do with politics some of it had to do with um a trade that was made in in that ultimately you know the the republican side wanted to secure a lot more money for nuclear facilities in exchange for a treaty like this um some of it had to do with just, I, I guess, a political shift in the way that uh, nuclear weapons reductions are interpreted in, in inside of Congress and the administration and, and really politically. And so I think coming out of that treaty, the Obama administration really knew that uh, a slightly more controversial treaty, <laughs> one that, that didn't look like sort of this, this business as usual, uh, was going to be really impossible to get through the Senate. And so they didn't even try. <laughs> they, they didn't even ultimately. And you also were living in this environment where Congress was sort of playing bad cop to the administration's good cop. They were putting on more and more congressional sanctions as we were going through the process. Um, then you had some folks like Tom Cotton who were like writing their own letters to President Rouhani and, and sort of inserting themselves in the process. It was like, a, it was a really controversial process the whole time it was being negotiated. And so once the deal actually came out, I'm not sure from my seat watching it all happen that it, that it would have necessarily mattered what was in the deal. It had become so political and so charged by that point that you almost really, the Republicans couldn't accept it as, as something that was going to be good for the country. I think it was really based in this idea that, you know, Iran was a bad guy. Iran was doing a lot of other bad things in the Middle East. They were uh, trouble. They were probably lying to us. It, it's like, it's a really fundamental, fundamentally different understanding that uh, the Republicans and, and detractors from the deal had of what was going on than the Obama administration had. The Obama administration had, the Obama administration wanted to first and foremost take the nuclear issue off the table because that was the most, uh, that was the most dangerous part of the problem. And then they wanted to potentially begin to improve relations with Iran, uh, I think largely because uh, of, they, they believed in a bit of a shifting of the relationships within the Middle East, um, you know, our traditional, maintaining our traditional allies, but also beginning to sort of open up to folks like Iran, who we might be able to incentivize to become a better, become better actors. Um, there are some other really specific things that folks have, have, uh, have disagreed with. One of them that I think is the most convincing is the fact that the deal doesn't deal with Iran's ballistic missile capability. Um, 
And that's a concern because if you're someone who disagrees with the deal, you, you say that Iran, while it's party to this deal, is fine. They don't need all of that nuclear capability. They don't need those centrifuges and all of the other things because they already have the institutional knowledge. They already know what it's going to take to build a nuclear weapon if they decide to build a nuclear weapon. And they've they've kept some of their facilities. You know, I, it's a little bit of a, a tough argument because it, it is costing a lot of, it would cost Iran a lot of money to rebuild the things that they dismantled. Um, but the idea is that you know, what they really need to develop and what they need time to develop is their ballistic missile capability. And so while we're in, under this deal with the sunset provisions, which are, the, you know, the fact that part of the deal runs out after a certain amount of time, that Iran is going to build its, its ballistic missile capability and, uh, you know, sit back and wait. And when the deal runs out, it will build a nuclear weapon. It'll have that ballistic missile capability just sitting and waiting. And, you know, there we go, we'll have a very dangerous nuclear we new nuclear weapon state. Um, it's based in the idea that you think that, that Iran's intentions are not pure and that they're cheating the whole time, probably. Maybe they have facilities, you know, out, more facilities out in the sides of mountains somewhere that uh, they'll have that nuclear weapons capability sort of ready to go. Um, and. And that's essentially that's a fair argument, but it also, if you buy that argument, you really have no other option than to go the route of pressure or the route of you know, something else, possibly war. Because if you just think that all diplomacy is going to fail and that Iran is always going to be cheating, then then you know, you've really backed yourself into a corner. Um, Right. So, so there me, you have it. <laughs> there you have us in, a, in our current situation. Yeah, let me <laughs> see if I can summarize that. Um, so the, the primary or the strongest objection to the deal was that it didn't address like a really key aspect, the ballistic missile program, and that they could continue to develop. And so essentially we were just kind of, you know, put a nice marketing sheen over it while releasing them from all of their pressure. So giving them back their frozen assets and releasing the sanctions. Um, and, you know, I can, I can kind of see that, but okay, so let's talk about pulling out of the deal. We pulled out of the deal. Yeah. Um, President Trump announced in May 2018 that they would abandon the deal because of an executive agreement. He could essentially do that with, with pretty, pretty much only there was probably a clause in the deal about how many days it would take. Um, uh, what have we gained by pulling out of the deal? Yeah. So this is where it, it starts to really not make any sense at all. Um, because pulling out of the deal just put us right back to, so basically in 2012, when we started negotiating this deal, we were, we were at a point where, you know, we, we, it was looking like we could go to war with Iran. Um, the deal really pulled us back from that point. And it gave us time. It may have given Iran time, but it also gave us time. It gave us time to, to try to deal with this issue in a way that was peaceful, in a way that, that didn't resort to war. And essentially, choosing to pull out of the deal has just put us right back in 2012. We're, you know, we do, and, and this is where you see the Trump administration saying, things that look very much like they would accept a deal that looked like the Iran deal now. <laughs> and, and actually like the deal that they want with North Korea is also, you know, they would be lucky to get something that looked like the Iran deal, which, you know, putting aside the fact that North Korea already has nuclear weapons and, and that it wouldn't be exactly the same, but the kind of monitoring that we had with, with uh, Iran, they would be lucky to get that kind of thing with North Korea. So, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting place that we're in because it, it seems as if after pulling out of the deal, the Trump administration has realized, oh, wait, our, our two choices are diplomacy or war. There's not kind of an in-between. Pushing Iran more is only getting us back to this place where the pressure, where, where the tension is rat ratcheting up and it looks dangerous and it looks like at a, you know we have these moments like we did a few weeks ago where it really looks like there has to be a choice made whether or not we 
you know, launch some sort of attack or don't. Uh, and prior to that, we were living out of the deal where we had inspectors going in and inspecting their nuclear facilities. They were able to gather all sorts of intelligence that allowed us to better understand what Iran was doing, even if they are, even if they were cheating, having those inspectors on the ground allowed us to have a gave us a lot better chance at catching them. And now we don't have any of that. We don't have any of that that benefit. And so yes. it's it it really is. Uh, it really we put ourselves back in a tough place. We put we 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 stepped ourselves back it's, by a it's almost, number of years. It's almost like we've forgotten the last twenty years. And um, you know, we we went to Afghanistan. We went to Iraq. Two very costly conflicts for our country, both in terms of lives and resources. Um, both situations not looking, you know. Yeah. peaceful, <laughs> yeah. um, like satisfactory, successful outcomes after so much expenditure of blood and treasure on our part. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, Iran is essentially calling our bluff and our appetite for essentially the only way to stop a country from doing things is to take, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops into that territory, take over the territory, remove the government and all of that. We've already done that. We've seen how that's gone and it hasn't gone the way <laughs> we had hoped. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're, we're in this, unfortunately, we're back to 2012, but we're not just back to 2012. Um, I don't think that Iran's going, yeah, let's sit down for another one of those deals. <laughs> right. No, they're not. And, and also, you know, Iran is a country that doesn't respond well to pressure. The, <laughs> one of the reasons, yeah, one of the reasons why the Obama administration's pressure campaign worked really well I think, uh, is that it allowed the Iranians to sell it as it sort of economic improvement. They, they, you know, we had, they had many, many years of sanctions pressure, many, many years of pain on their economy. And then Rouhani was elected and he was elected on a platform of, of, of fixing the economy. And he said, hey, one of the ways that I'm going to fix the economy, because this is my plan, not the Americans' plan. This is my plan. I'm going to fix the economy by reaching out to the Americans and fixing this whole this whole nuclear thing that we have going on, and then then we'll get rid of some of the sanctions. So Iran had the, the the Iran was taking the reins there, and they were able to sell it to their people politically, just like we were able to sell it to our people politically. That matters. I think often we forget that other countries have their own political environment to deal with in the same way that we do. And there's a lot of strategic maneuvering that goes into the kind of diplomacy that the Obama administration was able to pull off. It's not just a blunt instrument. It's not just a, hey, I'm going to hit you over the head until you give, which is very much what the Trump administration is doing right now. They're hitting them over the head and saying, why aren't you submitting to the pressure that we are putting on? And that's, it, it's not working. And it's not well, a surprise that it's not working. I mean, it really comes back to where we started in this, in this episode is um, story narrative. And they had a good narrative and now they don't yeah. have a good narrative. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. They don't have the narrative. They don't have the story. They don't have the, they don't have the reason that even explains to Iran what they're doing because they, because even when the Trump, even when Trump himself comes up and says, I, what I really want is to talk to the Iranians. Why won't they just come up and come to the table and talk to me? And then two days later, he puts on new sanctions or sanctions Javad Zarif or shit, sanctions, that sanctions the Supreme Leader. What, what is, what does that signal to Iran? That signals you don't really want to talk. You just want to pressure it's, us until we break. It's the equivalent, and so if it's you come to the table, that's it. It's the equivalent of saying to a colleague, I really want to work with you, meanwhile circumventing them and going to the boss. Absolutely. The, the uh, Iranian uh, people are the boss, right? Even though they're not a democratically elected country in the way that we understand it, Iran's government has to yield to pressure from their population yes. at times. Yes. And that's very much how we got the Iran deal initially. We, we were a able to create this environment, and not just us. The environment was created in Iran that gave us an opening. In 2009, there, uh, President Ahmadinejad was reelected against the, 
wishes of the people who really wanted to see a, a more reformist candidate elected. And there was a huge uprising, the green uprising in Iran. Uh, people protested for days and days. This was on the heels of the Arab Spring. Uh, ultimately, Iran, you know, took military action to 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 quell the protests and um, and and quiet the people. But they also submitted. I I believe that this is why we have Iran have Rouhani as president of Iran today, because at the same time as they sort of pushed down the protests and quieted the people, a strategic decision was made inside the, the Iranian government to move in a slightly more reformist direction that would make the people happy because they were clearly clearly calling for some kind of change. And that had a lot to do with the economy. And that was, again, Rouhani's platform. He was elected on the economy. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we'll have to see how this turns out um, moving forward. But unfortunately, uh, yeah, pulling out of an agreement, unfortunately, it, it makes it really hard to get back to the table, even harder than it was before. And I think that's really underestimated and was underestimated by this administration. So this has been an absolutely fan fantastic conversation. I love I love it how you, how we weave stories back and forth about you know <laughs> underlying what's all happened here. Um, because yep. at the end of the day, there are very complex stories um, behind behind this deal. Um, so why don't you tell listeners where they can find um, you at Inkstick Media and also your podcast? Yeah. Yeah. So inkstickmedia.com is an online foreign policy magazine. We have a newsletter that we send out every Monday uh, that gives you sort of a rundown of the latest foreign policy news, but not the headlines, uh, some of the stuff that you might have missed. You can sign up for that on the website and you can find things that go boom, our podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.